Thomas Mild. My name is Chris. Currently, the whole world is focused on the coronavirus. Scientists all over the world are working extremely hard every single day to find new solutions. New diagnostics, novel therapies and vaccines to fight off the virus. A tremendous amount of money from philanthropic billionaires, multinational companies and governments are flowing to scientists to help them develop the much-needed medication very, very quickly. It's a good thing to see how well-organized science is these days to help patients as quickly as possible. But not only antiviral medication is much needed. Next to the virus problem, there are also many, many harmful bacteria. By sheer numbers, bacteria are by far the most successful life form on Earth. Very often, a viral infection weakens the immune system and opens the door for bacteria. Happily, they take advantage of the situation and grow in numbers. So what's going on in the antibacterial space in scientific research and development? In this episode, I'm talking with Alexander Belcredi. He is the CEO of Fagomet. Fagomet is a Vienna-based life science company. The team dedicates its passion to develop novel therapies to help patients who suffer from bacterial infection. Learn more about why not all viruses are actually bad and some can be trained to fight off bacteria. Alexander, welcome to our new episode of uh, the Life Science Get Together podcast. Uh, you are this, you're welcome. Uh, you are the CEO of Fagomet. Fagomet is a Vienna-based life science company. Uh, tell me a little bit about your professional career. What motivated you to enter the life science industry? Very happy to share a bit of light on that. First of all, so I'm the, the co-CEO, so we're actually two CEOs, um, Lorenzo and myself lead the company. Um, what motivated me to get into this? So I've always been very much attracted to the life science field. My mother is a doctor. Um, I've always had a strong interest in everything medical. Um, I didn't really decide to study it. Uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm myself, sometimes not sure why, but I, I took more of a business route. Um, I studied the history and economics and then entered a consulting company and a consulting track. And at that point, immediately decided that the field I wanted to be close to is the healthcare field. And so during my time as a consultant, I um, worked for healthcare companies, uh, pharma companies, medical technologies companies. And um, at some point, I uh, stumbled upon the topic of bacteriophages and uh, the antibiotic crisis that we're facing. And um, one thing led to the other, and at the end, um, I felt the need to, to quit my consulting job and start a company in this field, and, and that company is now Fagomet. So you are one of the, the, the founders of, of Fagomet. How did it come to the foundation of the company? So that was a long time in preparation. So if I remember correctly, the first time that uh, I got into contact with Phages was um, around about 2012, 2013. Um, my father-in-law is, is a German surgeon 
who had been treating patients with phages um, in, in Germany in individual settings, experimental settings, when all antibiotics had failed. And um, he was interested in understanding why we didn't have any phage-based pharmaceuticals that he could use more regularly um, with his patients. And uh, that sort of question and that frustration also on his part um, got me interested into the whole field and led to, to myself asking the question, well, why don't we actually have phage-based pharmaceuticals? And then uh, at some point also attracted uh, my, my co-founder Lorenzo uh, to the question who's a molecular biologist. And so then the three of us started looking into the phage field. Um, my father-in-law as a surgeon who's used phages, uh, Lorenzo as uh, the molecular biologist and myself as a sort of a business person. And we decided that we wanted to do something about it. And then in 2017, found the company. So basically, uh, half of the company is family-owned, uh, or two-thirds are family-owned. So it's uh, your father-in-law and, and yourself and uh, then your partner, uh, which brings together the, the founder's team. Uh, what skills uh, do you recommend when you found a company? I think there's, there's a ton of different skills that you need. I think if you found a, a life science company, then obviously it's important to have somebody in the founding team who really understands the science. And in, in our case, that's uh, Lorenzo, who has a very deep knowledge about uh, molecular biology, but also in particular um, phages by now and, and how we can use them. Um, it's also good to have a bit of a, a business skill set. Um, so that's probably the role that, that I play and that I could contribute of having sort of a very um, economics and, and business-focused uh, mindset uh, to bring to the table. And then it helps to have somebody who understands what you would do with the product. And for that, uh, um, um sort of my father-in-law, the surgeon in the team, uh, was also a great asset because he had used phages and he was able to, from the start, guide us as to where we could maybe do, make a difference with the phage-based pharmaceutical. So I think it's, it's the, the combination of different skills that you need. Whether they all need to be in the founder team, I think that's an open question. In, in our setting, that was for sure one of the things that, that we felt was an advantage, that we had a, a strong science perspective, a strong business perspective, and a strong medical perspective in the founding team. Oh, I absolutely see that and recommend it to start with, with the skill sets that you mentioned. Uh, you were talking a lot about uh, phages. I am a business person myself and have limited understanding of science. Could you explain a little bit what uh, Phagomet is doing? Sure. So you, I mean, you probably read and you're aware that uh, we are running out of antibiotics um, that work. And uh, the simple reason is that the bacteria are becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotics that, that we've developed. Um, and that's actually a huge challenge because so much of our medicine is built on having antibiotics that protect us from infections. For example, during any type of surgery, you will get antibiotics to make sure that there are no uh, surgical site infections or other type of infections happening. But also in bacterial infections that, uh, that we contract by other means, antibiotics obviously stay the standard of care. So it's really scary to think about um, antibiotics no longer working or no longer being there. Now, in nature, bacteria have a, a natural enemy, and these enemies are viruses, viruses called phages, that uh, have co-evolved with bacteria over the past billion of years and have one function, and that's to hunt, infect, and kill bacteria. 
And so now what we do at Fargomate is we find ways to take these natural viruses, these phages, and uh, bring them into a drug that we can actually use um, in patients in situations in which antibiotics fail. That's very, that's very interesting. So basically, you're using viruses to, to fight bacteria, if I understand it exactly. right. Exactly. And then maybe in, 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 in today's time and place, it's very important to mention <laughs> that phages are very particular viruses. So they yeah. only infect bacterial cells. Um, and it's uh, sometimes the word virus has very negative connotations um, mm -hmm. because we, we sort of associate it with, uh, with bad diseases. And in the current um, pandemic, I think it's very clear that there are some very harmful viruses out there. It's sometimes important to, to note that talking about a virus is a bit like talking about transportation. Uh, a train is a very different animal from a, a bicycle and uh, the same holds with viruses. So phages are viruses, those kinds of viruses that only infect bacterial cells and in that function might actually save our lives. Um, you mentioned antibiotics business. I started myself, my career in life science with Nobriva. It's uh, a listed company meanwhile, and they are doing research in antibiotics. How do you see the situation, generally speaking, in the world with antibiotics? I mean, we have a lot of companies who are doing research in that field. Uh, why do you believe we are running into a situation with antibiotics? I think there's multiple reasons. I think the first one is there are not enough companies researching new antibacterials. So if you look across the globe, there are very few new registrations of novel type of antibiotics happening. I think actually Nebriva, the company you mentioned, um, is uh, sort of the last company to successfully bring an antibiotic to market in the US. And then that's one of just a very handful in the past two decades. So it's, um, we don't have enough companies doing research in the field. We also don't have an attractive economic climate for traditional antibiotics. So we've been extremely successful at driving down the price of antibiotics. Most of them are genericized today. And so it's unclear whether if you're able to bring a novel antibiotic to market, what kind of a price point can you attain and will that be attractive and as I said, that's particularly a problem for, for small molecular antibiotics. Um, so it's, it's a challenging field from multiple perspectives. But I think at the same time, what's clear is we are just as affected by bacterial infections as we were you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, they are a fact of life. Every one of us has them. Many will have serious bacterial infections. We're just running out of the drug that was supposed to keep us safe. Okay, so this is it in a nutshell. We are running out of uh, antibiotics currently, and uh, the field you are doing research in might be a potential solution. How is the competition in your field? I, I always joke that the competition is not big enough yet. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, the reality is phage-based pharmaceuticals are making a very slow comeback. So mm -hmm. we've known about phages for about 100 years um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Actually, many companies sold phage solutions, but back then we didn't really understand phage biology. We didn't properly understand uh, the etiology of many infections. And when small molecule antibiotics, and the first one was penicillin, came along, uh, that wiped out the market of phage pharmaceuticals and for a good reason. Now we're sort of 80 years later, and we find that antibiotics are sort of losing their edge, and we need to start to reinvestigate all the routes that we have, and phages are an important route that we take. Now, to come back to your question, we sort of track globally between 10 and 15 companies 
doing similar things um, to what we do, mostly in different indications. So what we already see is that other phage companies, they tend to place a slightly different focus either in terms of technology that they're using or in terms of indication. And so we don't really see them as competitors for now, but rather our peers. I think together we have the responsibility to show and to demonstrate that phage-based pharmaceuticals can make a big difference. And that's the first goal. And so any clinical trial that happens in this space, I think it's good news for everybody else in the field. And um, we need to break through the sound barrier of showing that phage-based pharmaceuticals can have an impact. And the more companies join us in that, the better. Yeah, I would like to understand uh, your uh, area in the industry a little bit better. Uh, are there already any companies in the clinic currently? You have um, two companies that are in the clinic in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. for uh, complicated uh, urinary tract infections and for, for acne. And um, they are in uh, phase one trials. So it's, it's very early. Uh, you have a, two failed clinical trials. So you have two unsuccessful clinical trials with phages in Europe and, and in Asia um, that mostly failed for uh, rather sort of non-drug uh, non drug topics. So the European one failed due to manufacturing. They weren't able to keep the phages stable. And so uh, when they gave them to the patient, they actually had lost all of their efficacy. So I think that's a, a well understood um, challenge now, but that's also been solved by the companies now in, in phase one trials in, mm -hmm. in the US. And the one in Asia failed because the etiology of the disease was misunderstood. So there the assumption was that a certain variant of E. coli was causing diarrhea and the phages were very successful in killing that variant of E. coli, um, but the disease didn't go away. And so the okay. hypothesis was, was not the right one there. So okay. you have these initial clinical efforts. Yeah, and I think we've learned from the ones that have not been that successful. And now my hope is that in, in 2020, 2021, we will see initial trials with phages that show very clear um, efficacy. Um, and I think the beauty about phages that we haven't talked about it before is because phages are incredibly precise. So phages will infect only a specific species of bacteria. And so they are to us as humans also incredibly safe uh, we don't know of any side effects. All the trials that I've done so far have not shown any side effects. So the, the gold standard for phages is showing efficacy, and uh, that's what needs to be done next for us as an industry. Okay. Um, a little bit more about the industry. Is there anything on the market already um, um, in, in your field? Not in our medical world. Um, you do have a strong tradition of um, phage medicine in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So if you go to countries such as Georgia or Russia, there are phage manufacturers and you will be able to buy phage drugs, for example, in pharmacies. But these have not been developed according to the standards that we set uh, in, in Europe or the US, for example. So they have not been validated in randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. They are not manufactured in GMP. Um, so there are real challenges in using these drugs in, in our setting. Uh, so, yes, you have some experiences there, and you have a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that phages have a strong role to play in our medicine, but we now need to translate that into our Western regulatory framework and prove that also a GMP-produced phage cocktail can show clear efficacy and superiority in a randomized placebo-controlled trial. 
Yeah, uh, that's a good point coming back to the European regulatory environment, which needs a bit of work before anything can hit the market. I think we also see the situation currently with the COVID-19 um, disease that it will take a little bit of time to get everything through. Um, and usually in, in our area, when we start companies, uh, 100,000 or 200,000 euros um, are not enough. Um, how is it in the, in the, in the phages field? Uh, what are your estimates? How much money do you need to achieve a point uh, at which you can say uh, the product is in a prototype stage that becomes attractive to the pharma industry? So I think you're absolutely right. I think if you're developing a drug, then the amount of money you need to uh, demonstrate that the drug, the drug has merit is um, substantially more than 100,000, 200,000 euros. Um, but for good reason. Yeah, I think for drugs, we have a very high uh, bar. We have very high standards. And we have those standards because in the past, we had um, problems with drugs that weren't sufficiently evaluated, either from a safety perspective or from an efficacy perspective. So uh, getting a drug to market is, is hard and expensive and, and for good reason. So I think to, to your question of how much do you need to invest to be able to show, let's say, quote unquote, success by being able to partner with a large um, pharma company, then I think our view is that traditionally you will need to have initial clinical data showing efficacy and safety. So um, having data from a first uh, phase two trial is I think in general the point in time when you will, with strong data, be able to attract um, pharma companies uh, to partner with you. How much will that cost? I think that highly depends on the indication that you choose, on uh, the complexity and, and the patient numbers. Um, but for sure, we are talking double-digit millions um, before you get to the point where you have phase two data in your hand. Mm. I it's similar in other indications with other drugs. Um, minimum double-digit amount is needed. Um, so mostly the inventors of um, interesting technology are scientists, and the people with deep pockets are usually not scientists. Um, when you think about Fagomet, uh, what kinds of sources of funding uh, did you tap into So we, we have two main sources of funding. The, the, the first one, and actually I think the one that, that makes Austria particularly attractive as a, um, a place to, to develop a biotech company are non-dilutive fundings. So um, in our case, we have uh, raised more than 4 million euros in non-dilutive funds from different uh, programs of the Austrian government. Uh, and that's been a, a very important cornerstone for what we do and has allowed us to scale very quickly and much more quickly than if we had to rely only on, on private funding. So that's fantastic and that's very important. At the same time, what's actually great about these programs is they force you to put private money on the table as well, which from a, an efficiency perspective, also a tax efficiency perspective, totally makes sense. And so um, we had to complete a seed round that allowed us to co-fund the grants and then we've um, raised 2.3 million uh, from our, our round of seed investors uh, to get us going. Yeah, so in total, we've raised um, slightly over 6.5 million uh, so far. Um, and that's more or less funded or is still funding the first three years of our journey. 
That's great. Congratulations. Uh, big success to get this kind of funding in. Um, so when you come to a point where you say, as a business person in a life science company, where you say, I would need more money to move the science forward and, and come into the development stage, what steps do you recommend to other entrepreneurs who think about addressing or uh, approaching investors? What steps do you recommend to prepare uh, before talking to any investor? Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, I think as a life science company, you're always somewhere in between, uh, you know, you, you probably have raised some money or you've had had some success, be it a grant, be it something mm. else, but you already know that's not going to last forever. And so you already know that you will need to go out and, and do fundraising again. And so I think the, if I think about things that, that we have done and that, uh, that have contributed to our successful fundraising, I think one of the most important ones is to, to be active and be out there and uh, go to the conferences and share your, your story, share your science to the extent that you can share that in a non-conferential setting, um, participate in pitch competitions, participate in, in different event formats to make sure that you on the one hand give your your science and your company visibility out there but on the other hand get feedback well so what for us was critical from a very early stage is even meeting with investors who we knew were not going to invest in this round so for example venture capitals who only invest into clinical stage companies uh, it still made sense to approach them and it still made sense to to try and get meetings with them because they always give some form of feedback and the feedback can be they accept your meeting or they don't. The feedback can either tell you it's interesting or it's not, or it can be even beyond that mm -hmm. in terms of, well, we like this and this, but you really need to work on that side. And so any type of feedback is extremely valuable in deciding what to do next, deciding where to allocate your funds and also deciding how to maybe improve how you visualize, how you um, share what you're actually doing. And so we tried to do that from a very early stage, even before we founded the company, we went out um, to, to pitch competitions, we went out to conferences, we tried to get meetings with um, investors to understand what they were looking for. Um, and that really helped us in our fundraising, but also in shaping up the strategy to take and the drug development path to take, because the reality is um, for a drug, you need to probably show 50, 60, 70 different um, endpoints, data points on everything from efficacy to stability manufacturing, but you can't do it all at the same time. So you need to figure out what are the what are the few data points that will drive the value of what you're doing and that will um, de-risk uh, the the drug that you're developing. So show that it's that you've solved some of the big risks that are ahead of you. And if you can zoom zoom in on those, if you can focus on those then that will help you when you go back to the investor in, in a couple of months' time to really show progress against what they value most. Mm -hmm. no, I, like, I like your approach. I'm personally a big fan of uh, an extensive relationship building phase. So not only going out on the market when you need money, uh, because in our industry, we are talking about few millions and not uh, uh, 10 or 20 euros to invest in a company. And I believe uh, building a relationship upfront before coming to the point to raising any money is uh, key to success. And also hear the other opinion on the market. Uh, you only go on the market when you really are raising funds. 
What was your experience with investors? Did they evaluate your approach and uh, welcome it that you reach out to them before you need money or did you also hear other opinions? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I think as with everything, you you have multiple types of different uh, personalities and that also holds true for the investors. So we, we see both. Yeah, We see investors who will essentially tell us, um, we will only meet with you if you are at that stage. So for example, uh, contact us again once you are clinical stage, once you're starting your first clinical trial, and then we're willing to talk. But there are other investors who are sort of more curious and want to know what's out there and what type of technologies are out there, what's developing. And I think those are the ones where you then have an easier time getting a meeting, even though they will tell you, well, we typically only invest, you know, in, in two years time compared to where you are today. So I think you, you have different types out there. But I think it's, it's sort of you need to or it's helpful to look at it from two perspectives. One perspective is who are the ones who would be able to invest today and who are my investors for this rounds and who are the ones who have a lot of experience in this field and can give me good feedback. And uh, feedback is sometimes nearly as valuable as the actual money. That's true. Feedback is always important. Uh, talking about a bit of success rates, sometimes I hear uh, people, especially from the consulting side, telling me that they have 60, 70, 80% success rate when they talk to investors. Um, how is your experience? I mean, you know the market, you have been on the market raising funds for your company, also working as a consultant. Uh, how should somebody who is about starting a company be prepared for getting no's? Is this uh, usually event that you get a lot of um, no's when you ask for money or is it a straightforward process? You call three investors and get your three million in after three calls. What's your experience in that? Or... I think it's, uh, so it, it's definitely not the case that every investor that you call will immediately write you a check. Um, certainly not in, in our business where the science really matters a lot. So the strength of your patents, the, the novelty of your science, the ability of your team to demonstrate that they can actually drive the science forward. There are a lot of things which are, where sort of the fundamentals matter much more. You know, so, you know, you, we sometimes joke that maybe developing an app would have been easier than trying to develop a drug. Um, but at the same time, the drug is probably <laughs> at the end much more valuable to us as humans than the app. Uh, but the, the matter of fact is, if you invest in a drug, it's going to be expensive. It's going to take a long time and it needs to be a good drug. Otherwise, you will not mm. be able to see a return. And so having, making sure that the fundamentals are in place, that you know how your patent landscape is going to look like, that you know how novel your science is, that you understand the risks that you are taking and what sort of the 
the potential risk factors in your drug are, the more you, you understand that yourself, the better you'll be able to communicate with investors because the smart investors will immediately zone in on the two or three problem areas that you have and you will need to have smart answers on how you're going to, to address them and, and solve them. Um, in terms of success rates, that, that's always difficult. I think to, to, with fundraising, you're not just looking for somebody to give you money. You're looking for the right partner. And so I'd compare it maybe more to, to dating. You know, you will meet um, many people who you might be attracted to, but it doesn't really make sense to start a relationship with every one of them. And <laughs> ideally, you, you can choose who you want to start a relationship yeah. with. You might still have to screen a lot of people to actually find the person you want to have that relationship with. So it's a bit the same with fundraising. We have turned down offers from investors mm -hmm. where we felt it wasn't the right time or it wasn't the right investor. We have, on the other hand, been disappointed that, you know, some investors that we really liked at the end decided that uh, we weren't uh, advanced enough or they had other opportunities that they liked more. In the end, it's about, you know, going through that process and then finding the group of investors that you're happy with and that you're convinced will be able to add value and be stable long-term partners beyond just the cash they put on the table. And so I would, I would view the whole fundraising process maybe as less of, of transactional and more mm -hmm. as you're going through a process. It will take time and you will need to look at, at many different types and forms and shapes of investors. And then hopefully if your science is strong and if your team is strong and if you have the right strategy in place, you will find the few investors that really match with what you're doing and that share the same, the same vision and the same overall goals. I like your example with uh, with dating. So our business is, or our industry is not transactional. It's not flipping things like uh, dropshipping, for example, on the internet. It's quite popular right now that you uh, have one-time events with customers. What we are doing is getting investors into our companies and uh, working together with them for at least two or three years, if not five to ten years in the drug development space. Um, not a question. Yeah, I think it's, especially yeah. in the, the, if I can just jump in there, I think especially in, in, the, in the early stage, if I think about our seed investors, so our initial, the, the very first seed investors that joined sort of our journey joined in 2018. We're now two, two and a half years, well, two years into the journey with them. And the next exit event is probably still three, four years away when we've completed our first clinical trial. So the early investors that join you, they need to join with the patience and the vision um, that this will take quite a substantial amount of time before you can reliably promise them an, an exit event, in which case they will hopefully make uh, sort of a very nice return on what they've invested. So even in the very first place, choosing investors who have that type of a risk appetite is extremely crucial. And I think one of the things where we're very happy that we took the decision is we did not accept investments from what you would traditionally call family and friends. And one of the main reasons is that we didn't think that they had the risk profile, um, the investment risk profile that we were looking for uh, in terms of people who understand that it might take a number of years before you will be able to see whether this is, you know, on the on a path to be very successful, moderately successful or not successful. It's not something where in a year or one and a half years later, you have the chance to make a quick turnaround and uh, earn you, you multiple 
in a short time frame. Mm -hmm. It's a great answer and a great approach. Um, you were talking a, uh, a lot about uh, challenges you were facing during fundraising. Uh, coming from, from the coaching side, what was the biggest challenge that you had to solve uh, during raising funds for your company? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I think that the most challenging question is always, what do you want? Uh, because I think the, I think that has multiple dimensions. One dimension is how much money are you actually looking for? Mm -hmm. So if you are the founder, then uh, any money that you raise comes at a cost and the cost is your own shares in the company, your own equity. And so maintaining the balance between raising enough money to give you sort of peace of mind, to allow you to scale, to build the company, to do the right experiments, that's critical. But at the same time, if you can balance that with not raising too much money, then sort of you are in the middle of that, the trade-off between how you know expensive is it now to raise that money and how much money do I need? And figuring that out is not, that not trivial and there's probably no right or wrong answer but that's for sure yeah. something that we we kept coming back to how much money do we actually want to raise and then obviously what what is what's related to that is what do we want to do with that uh, you know where do we invest mm -hmm. it and um and then the third part is you don't actually need to find somebody who says well this is exactly what i would like to invest in in terms of the size in terms of maturity in terms of where it will get us into the next fundraising um, so for us, the, one of the biggest questions, I'm not sure whether it's a challenge, but it's certainly something where we spend a lot of time and energy on is trying to figure out when is the right time to raise, how much do we want to raise, how much equity are we willing to give up for that, um, and then who are the right investors to bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good points, especially about the right uh, time to raise. What are your indicators that you are looking at? It's probably more of an art than a science, figuring out when, when to raise. I think for us, it's always been about, um, you know, getting the feeling that we need to scale again. So if I, if I you know, go back to initially, initially we, we sort of built up a small team. There were six of us in, in Vienna. And we were able to make some progress along the drug development pathway with our two, two main candidates uh, at that stage, really discovery candidates that we had. And at some point after, you know, maybe nine months of lab work, it became clear that both of them were actually shaping up pretty nicely. And so where initially we had thought that maybe, you know, of these two candidates, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll continue one and we'll forget about the other. It somehow became clear that they were both actually quite viable. And they were both generating value and were generating new patterns and were generating interesting data. And so it became clear that if we wanted to keep pursuing both of them, 
we could not do that in the setting that we were in. We couldn't do it in the lab that we were in. We couldn't do it with the small team that we had. We needed to scale again. And that was the point where we then decided, okay, let's you know pull forward our next fundraising round um, and, uh, and do it a bit earlier than we'd anticipated. So we initially planned the first round closed in, uh, in April, 2018. We had planned the second part of that seed round in sort of October-ish 2019, and we had to pull that forward to June uh, 2019 to make sure that we could scale. And so then we we scaled again, and we're now 14 in Vienna, and uh, we are making good progress along our drug candidates, and we now are again in a situation that we already know if we want to keep the speed that we have, and if we want to push these programs to the clinic, then next year we're going to have, again, substantially higher costs for manufacturing, mm-hmm. for clinical trial planning and everything. So. Once again, we're out fundraising now um, for our Series A um, because we feel that to keep the the right path and to keep the optimal pace and speed, now is the time that we have to get started with it. That's great. Um, Usually companies in our fields do not have revenue. So the only money that's coming in is either public money via grants and loans or private money via equity investments also on the loan side. Uh, what's your recommendation after you did several rounds of financing already uh, about the timing? Uh, how much time does it take from the idea to go out on the market and raise funds until you actually see the cash in? Is it a month or a matter of a couple of weeks or is it more on the 12 to, to 13, 15 month side? So I think the, first of all, I mean, the, the, there is an advantage in, in the current situation to being a company without revenues because at least it means that your liquidity planning with Corona looks exactly as before. <laughs> um, but that's a very silver lining to not having any, any revenues there because I think you're exactly right. Yeah, one of the biggest, the biggest questions that we always face is what's the run rate that you have and uh, when do you need to go out and start fundraising again? So we tend to calculate that from the start of fundraising efforts to the closing of a round, we need to calculate um, conservatively between eight and nine months. So similar to a pregnancy is about what we typically <laughs> we typically plan. <laughs> if you have a, a high rate of existing investors that will contribute mm-hmm. a lot to the round, then you might be faster. So our, mm-hmm. our seed round B, which overwhelmingly was subscribed to by the investors that had already um, invested in the first part of the seed round, there it took us um, about six months from start of fundraising to signed contracts and cash in the bank. Uh, if you have a substantial share of new investors or you're going out for the first time, then I would rather plan for you know a pregnancy duration. <laughs> uh, nine months is probably not a bad guess. Great examples. Did I hear it right before you started raising your Series A already? We just uh, started to go out, yeah. We are yeah. in the first trimester of a pregnancy. Okay. Um, can I ask you the question, how much money are you looking for? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Um, it's, uh, it's always difficult to pin down the number. So we believe that uh, we now want to raise um, 16 million euros, so one six, uh-huh. um, to get us on the fasted path into the clinic. Whether in the current um, fundraising climate uh, that's sort of uh, achievable, I think, is an open question. Um, but that's definitely what uh, we believe will generate the most value for our company. Um, and then we'll see where the appetite lies on 
the side of the investors and uh, how much cash is actually available at the moment in the market. What I think is also important to note is the later stage you become as a biotech company, um, these deals typically are structured in milestones. So uh, there's only a certain amount of cash that you will get in the beginning, and then uh, you need to prove in certain milestones that your science is advancing for the, for the investors to release the, the extra amounts. Uh, what milestones are you planning to achieve with the proceeds you make from the Series A? So I think the big milestone is pushing our programs from uh, the bench into patients. So we want to use that funds to start our first clinical trial um, by, by 2022. And uh, I think that's for a, a biotech company, a very important milestone because it shows that you can develop a drug that uh, not only performs well in experimental setting, but also has generated the data that convinces regulatory authorities to give you the go-ahead for a clinical trial. And that includes a thousand questions around manufacturing, around formulation, around efficacy, around safety. And so for us, that's the, the next big milestone that we need to reach. And as discussed before, um, going into the clinic is where uh, it starts to become really expensive and, and for good reason. And so that's what we want to achieve now with our series A. Absolutely. Uh, the Series A is uh, the 16 million only private money or is it the mixture of private and public money that you envision for the closing of the round? So here the, the primary objective is that for that to be private money. Okay. Are there still public funds on the markets that you can use to leverage the private money? There are. So we will continue to obviously apply for Austrian grant programs. So we still have a number of them running into 2021 and beyond. Uh, and that can continue to fund um, basic science. Um, at some point as a biotech, you get to the stage where you need to prepare for clinical trials. And that's where the public funds are not that widely available anymore. And probably with good reason, because at that point, you're much closer to commercialization. And so it's fair for private investors to take a bigger part of that risk. Having said that, there are a number of programs out there that specifically fund novel antimicrobials, novel antibiotics, and those are definitely programs that we're applying to and will continue applying to, and that can help us co-fund um, a lot of what we do. Will it in the future be possible to have that sort of 70% co-funding rate uh, non-dilutive that we have now? Um, no, that, that probably is not going to be feasible. Is it still going to be a substantial share? Yes, probably. Did you have a look at the Horizon programs already? For, for leveraging the Series A? We did have a look at the different Horizon programs. Um, do, are you sort of now on, on the science side or more on the business side of the Horizon programs because they have so many different ones? Um, we, can tell, we can talk about both. Uh, is antibiotics uh, covered from both sides, science and business-wise? So on the science side, there are a number of calls for, for antibiotics as well, but typically to my understanding is that the, the consortia that you need are quite extensive. And mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily um, from, you know, the perspective of bringing a single drug into the clinic where the IP is on the company side. We've not had uh, too much, or our, our feeling is that the Horizon um, programs on the science side are not necessarily uh, perfectly adequate to that. And on the business side, some of the Horizon programs, they expect, uh, you know, from, from the technology readiness level to be one or two years from market entry and uh, with a drug that's just unfeasible. And so I think it's a, the drugs are just a very special candidate. I think typically what we look at are more very specialized 
um, programs geared towards drugs. Um, the European Investment Bank, for example, has a number of programs where they fund clinical trials. Um, you have CARB-X, which is a global antimicrobial resistance accelerator that have grant programs in place. So it's more specialized type of grant programs that we typically look towards. That's great. So there is a lot going on still also on the, on the public funding side. Uh, we are coming to the end of uh, the interview and I would like to ask uh, one last question. Um, during your journey with uh, Fagomet and also as entrepreneur in the consulting space, um, after founding Fagomet, you made a lot of uh, experience, you closed several financing rounds, uh, found also the right partners to support you on your journey and also signed off probably a lot of contracts with CROs and with public funds that helped you to develop uh, your strategy. From that point where, where you are right now, what advice would you give your younger self uh, at the time when you started on your journey? That's an easy question. I think um, there's always things that, that, uh, that you can improve and probably also things that we could have done um, better along this journey. I think for us, what's always been most valuable is, is getting feedback. And um, that even goes before founding. I remember that back in 2016, so more than a year before we founded the company, we had asked a number of um, physicians and uh, professors to get together to a small uh, symposium. And we just told them, look, we have the idea of building a company in the phage space. This is the indications that we're looking at. You're experts in these indications. Um, you know, are, are we onto something or is this a stupid idea? And so we spent a day discussing with them whether it actually made sense to quit our day jobs and, and do this. And that was fantastic feedback. Um, to get at that early stage and, and surprisingly these you know um, very important uh, physicians and infectiologists were actually willing to commit a day to learn about something new and most of them hadn't really thought about phage therapy before and we had a fantastic discussion and this type of feedback is just extremely valuable along your journey because it allows you to sort of fine-tune what do you actually do and what are you actually driving towards and what's your vision that, that you want to create so I definitely think that that's one recommendation that, that I would give to anyone thinking about founding a company is find people who can give you good feedback and who can tell you whether what you have in mind makes sense or not. And we, we also change our approach a number of times um, along that pathway. I think the, the only other recommendation that, that I have, and I think that's something that we managed to actually do quite well, is to always think you know a year or two ahead and ask yourself the question, well, to be able to continue what we're doing, where do I need to be in a year and then two years from now? And then what does that mean? So I remember that uh, sometime beginning of last year, for example, we were, we were kind of sure that we had to scale again or scale up our, our lab, scale up our team. And uh, we hoped that, that we would be able to close the fundraising round. Um, but we were also, it was very clear to us that if we were successful in closing the round, we needed a new lab and a new office space because the current setting was just not going to sustain more than six people. And so before even having closed the round and before even, you know, having uh, decided whether we could afford to hire more people, we actively went out and started looking for a space to go into. And we even signed the rent contract before we had signed the investment round because we knew that if that happened and if everything went through, the most important thing next would be 
finding great people, but then those people needed somewhere to work. And so that actually allowed us to, you know, take the maximum speed out of last year. Um, but that was only possible because we took the risky decision of starting to find a more expensive lab long before we knew whether the fundraising round would actually work out. So thinking ahead, thinking one or two years ahead, figuring out where you want to be, but also what needs to be in place to get there. I think that's also something that, that is really critical. Alexander, thank you very much for your time and for giving a lot of insight into the development of Fagomet and your expertise and experience. I wish you all the best for the coming steps and especially for the closing of the Series A and I'm looking forward to hear more success stories from your team. Thank you very much, Christian, for your time. It's been great and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.